All right then, we're going to begin. Um, thanks for joining us. Um, so tonight's Q&A, we are tackling some questions you guys have put in uh, from Song of Songs, from 1 Peter and from 1 John. Um, so yeah, we'll see how we go. Um, I've given myself the simple ones and the difficult ones to these guys. <laughs> I do. It's the privilege of being the pastor, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, let me pray, and then, um, and then we'll kick off. Father God, thank you uh, for the opportunity just to come together, and um, thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for the way that it speaks to us. Thank you for um, your heart, uh, just to, to speak life and hope and freedom uh, to us, your people. And Lord, we pray that uh, as we unpack some of the questions that we've had as we've been journeying through your word. Lord, we pray that your spirit would be at work in this place tonight, that you would be speaking those things to us. Lord, that we would receive wisdom and a greater understanding about uh, what you're trying to say to us through your word and what you want us to take away from it. So yeah, come and, uh, come and just speak in this place. We ask in your name. Amen. All right, so the first question is for Chris, and it is Song of Songs chapter 3, verse 1. So all about the woman says, why would it take her all night to look on her bed for the one she loves? Why would this have been a, would this have been a dream? Uh, I guess the idea being, did it really take her all night to, to look on her bed? It was a pretty big bed, right? Um, or was this uh, that she was looking for him outside from her bed or something else? There's a lot of questions, but um, you'll be pleased to hear this one's quite simple, I think. So, uh, Song of Songs 3, verse 1 says, One night, as I lay, or this, this version anyway, um, One night as I lay in bed, I yearned for my lover. I feel like she'd say that in Bristol accent. I yearned for my lover. I yearned for him, but he did not come. Uh yeah, so um, the question is basically, uh, did, did she look around in her bed for, 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 for the lover that, that obviously the, the man and woman are having an exchange throughout the chapters of Song of Song? It's a dream? We, oui. I think that's all right. Uh, I think it's a dream for two reasons, or two reasons primarily. The first is... Um, in verse 2, she says, So I said to myself, I will get up and roam the city, searching in all its streets and squares. I think it's probably fair to say that uh, an, a single woman, which she would have been at this point, would not, have gone, would not have gone out into the streets at night on her own. So I think for that reason alone, um, she... What what's being written here is her speaking to herself in a her picturing this in a dream of her going out and searching for a lover. And um, but the second thing is, um, where, whereas this translation and other translations say one night as I lay in bed, um, there's there's broad agreement that uh, given that this word is used to describe lots of scenarios in in the Old Testament of night time. It's most often used to describe uh, multiple nights. So rather than it being one night, it's nightly as I lay in bed. 
So again, it gives gives that impression rather than of one event of her scrambling around in her bed or going out and looking. It's this continuous dream-like situation of looking for her lover. Um, and and when you look at it in the broader picture, it's it's all, it's very it's very poetic, isn't it? The whole of Song of Songs, um, and so it speaks more of her yearning for him than it does her actual literal looking. So I need to get a new Bible. <sighs> I definitely, I think we're gonna have to stop using the NIV. <laughs> I just looked it up in the Greek, and mate, you're so smart. It just says, on my bed by night. Not, yeah. Oh, that's cool. I like that. All right. Great. Next question, then. Is that all right, that answer? All good with that? Great. Next question is uh, Song of Songs 3, verses 7 to 11. Uh, Do these verses mean that King Solomon is the lover? So this one's me. So let's read... Let's read these um, verses. So verse 7 to 11. Uh, Look. So just the context here in verse 1, she's looking for her lover, right? And then suddenly verse 7. Look, it is Solomon's carriage escorted by 60 warriors, the noblest of Israel. All of them were, um, all of them wearing the sword, all experienced in battle, each with his sword at his side, prepared for the terrors of the night. King Solomon made for himself the carriage. He made it of wood from Lebanon. Its posts he made of silver, its base of gold. Its its seat was upholstered with purple, its interior inlaid with love. Daughters of Jerusalem, come out and look, you daughters of Zion. Look on King Solomon wearing a crown, the crown with which his mother crowned him on the day of his wedding, the day his heart rejoiced. So the question then, does this mean that King Solomon is the lover? I was thinking about this, and I was like, it would be really sad if she was looking for her lover, and she was longing for him, but then suddenly along came Solomon, and she was like, whoa, look at Solomon, and she just, you know, a poor, poor guy that was her lover, it's been abandoned for Solomon, but that's not the case, that is not the case, um, it's not that a more handsome, more powerful man came along, and she got distracted, I, I think, yes, practically, um, this is a love story told in a poetic form, right? And we get this story of these two lovers, this man and this woman. And we know right from the beginning, don't we, that it, that it says Solomon's Song of Songs. And then it, it goes on. And, and so we know that this is written by Solomon. Um, and I think fair to assume then that this is about Solomon and uh, one of his wives or a woman that he loved. Um, and so well, I think, yeah, practically, is, does this mean that Solomon is the lover? Absolutely, I think it does. However, like with lots of scripture, I think um, particularly like the prophets, there was an immediate practical application of the word that meant something to the people in that day at that time. But I think like with most of scripture, um, it doesn't just stop there. It also points to a bigger story that is being told uh, about Jesus and his kingdom. And I think we could, see, we could say that all the way through, right? We could look at stories from Genesis and we start to discover Jesus there. Did it mean that some of those things didn't, didn't mean what it was written? No, it did mean what it was written. They were stories or they were 
the, the history recorded of characters like Abraham and Moses and, and then things like, um, things like um, what Isaiah said like in, in what we've been reading recently. Like it was real and it meant something then and there in that moment to those people. But also it points to this bigger story, this eternal story about Jesus and his kingdom and what is going on there. So I think, yes, the lover is Solomon. But on another level, actually, when we read this, the lover really is, is Jesus. And there's a bigger story being told. Is that okay? Great. All right, then. Whizzing through these tonight. <laughs> Question three is for uh, Den. Um, and it is 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 6. Where is Zion? Uh, does it have a broader, more significant meaning than just being an actual place? Uh, just wait for you to get there. Ah, you're in Zion. Um, okay, you're all there? I'm going to read out now uh, what it says. For in Scripture it says, quite a famous verse really, because this goes through the Bible. I see, I see, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. So, double question really, where is Zion? And does it have a broader and significant meaning than just being an actual place? And I think by the end of the question, we'll see to our own benefit that it does have a broader place. Um, and I think we could really enjoy the answer because it's a good question. Through the Bible, uh, Zion is mentioned 152 times. Okay, so you can actually really go through the Bible with this. Um, what I'm going to do is I'm going to hand you out uh, a handout. If you just bear with me. Um, right, okay, here we go. What I've done is to um, just bulge up something really. Um, I've, I've bulged the back where the, all the verses are um, because I'm not any good on a computer, so um, you'll have to bear with me on that. We're going to the map, okay? So first of all, it says, where is Zion? So if we go right the way back, um, we'll see on that first verse, if we say, 2 Samuel chapter 5, verses 6 and 7. That's at the top left-hand corner of your verses. And it says... The king and his men marched to Jerusalem to attack the Jebusites who lived there. The Jebusites said to David, you are not getting here. Even the blind and the lame can ward you off. They thought, David cannot get in here. Nevertheless, David captured the fortress of Zion, which is the city of David. Now, the important thing there is the city of David is Zion. And I was actually saying that in the Bible. Okay, so 2 Samuel says that the city of David is Zion. If you turn over to your map, you'll see that I've outlined in red the old city of David. This is the, the city that David conquered. So this is the city of Zion. Jerusalem, the city of Zion. That's what it says in 2 Samuel. Now, over the years, what has happened with this is it uh, a lot of people have come along, and through the Middle Ages especially, and gradually said that the city of Zion 
is anywhere really within Jerusalem. Now, if you want to take the, the Temple Mount, which is just above the red line, it says Temple Mount, then I'll agree that that could be the city of Zion as well, because uh, that was a temple, and that was where uh, God dwelt within that temple. But gradually over the years, what has happened is that people have moved what originally was a city of David, and which says it in the Bible, and they've moved it over. And if you see on the map where it says Upper City, I've, I've done a cross, and it says Taurus, Mount Zion. Um, and that's how it should be on the map. It should say Taurus, Mount Zion, uh, but it don't. So what has happened is that people have moved it away from uh, Jerusalem, particularly archaeologists, um, such as my friend Kathleen Kenyon, um, who I have differences with. Um, and what she did was to come to Jerusalem around about um, 1970 and looking for the tomb of David. And she found what looked like the tomb of David. There's about seven or eight tombs where it says the tomb of David, um, which has been knocked about a bit. And she said that the tomb of David was in the upper city area. So everybody, along with people over the centuries, now believe that David's tomb uh, and the city of Zion is in the upper city where I've got the tourist Mount Zion. So if you're taking on a, a tour, you won't go to where I've, on my map I've got David's tomb. You will go to the tourist Mount Zion. And what they will show you is the upper room. They say it's the upper room uh, from the Last Supper. And underneath the upper room, they'll tell you that this is the tomb of David. Um, but what Nehemiah says when he rebuilt the walls was, behold, and I'm just going into Nehemiah uh, chapter 3 and verse 16. It says, this is Nehemiah, behold him, Nehemiah, son of Azbek, ruler of a half district of Bethsur, made repairs up to a point opposite the tombs of David, as far as the artificial pool and the house of the heroes. So Nehemiah himself is saying that this is where the tomb of David is, and the tomb of David is in the old city, Zion. So um, you will learn that. Zion can be anywhere in Jerusalem now, but I still place it in the old city, um, the old city of Mount Zion, just as the Bible says. So, if you turn over to the verses, what we're going to do is just flip through through those verses, uh, some of the 152 of the, the verses. And I'm going on to Psalm 76 and verse 1. God is renowned in Judah, in Israel, his name is great. His tent is in Salem, his dwelling place in Zion. And Salem, Salem is Jerusalem, okay? Salem, Jerusalem. And what uh, this psalm is talking about is that uh, his tent, which is originally the tabernacle when we came through the desert um, before uh, Israel came into the promised land. And now God's tent, if you like, is in Jerusalem, in the temple, Temple Mount. He is residing in Solomon's temple. So that's where this verse is coming from. So we're, we're progressing a little bit now. We're progressing to Solomon's temple. And in Genesis 14, verse 18, then Melchizedek, king of Salem, Salem, Jerusalem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God most high, and he blessed Abraham. 
And then we go on to Psalm 132, verses 13 and 14. So we're just progressing through the Bible again, through the Old Testament. The Lord swore an oath to David, a sure oath he will not revoke. One of your descendants I will place on the throne, if your sons keep my covenant and the statutes I teach them. Then your sons will sit on your throne forever and ever, for the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his overall dwelling. This is my resting place forever and ever. Here I will sit enthroned, for I have desired it. So now we're progressing again, because what it says here is that the Lord will have a throne in Zion. Now he's not going to be in Jerusalem. He's not going to be uh, in Zion in Jerusalem, because there's going to be a new heaven. There's going to be a new earth. So we're, we're, pro we're progressing on here now. And we go back to Amos, uh, chapter 1, verse 1 and 2. I've just thrown this in just because it comes into one of the prophets. The word of Amos, one of the shepherds of Tekoa, the vision he saw concerning Israel two years before the earthquake, when Isaiah was king of Judah and Jeroboam, son of Jehoash, was king of Israel. He said, the Lord roars from Zion and thunders from Jerusalem. At the pastures of shepherds dry up and the top of Carmel withers. So the Lord is roaring from Zion. We're now coming on to a different Zion than in Jerusalem. Jerusalem, like the physical Zion that we can, we can see. And the Lord is going to roar from Zion. He's going to thunder from Jerusalem. And now we're coming into the, the New Testament with Romans chapter 9 and verse 33, which comes into significance for us being in the kingdom. And it says, I see, I lay in Zion a stone that causes people to stumble, and a rock that makes them fall. And the one who believes in him will never be put to shame. So we're the ones who believe in him. We're the ones that are not going to be put to shame. So if the Lord is laying down a, Zion, a stone in Zion, the, the, the Lord, then we, we are with him. We're coming into this um, aspect that we are in Zion as well. All right? Now, at the moment, it might not look like we're in Zion because we're in a, um, looking through a, a, a glass uh, which we can't see properly, the, 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 the proper vision. But when we're in the new Jerusalem, when we're in heaven, we will be in a new Zion, the new Jerusalem. Um, and so I'm just going back to Isaiah, which is a famous verse, which links through to 1 Peter verse. So this is what the sovereign Lord says. See, I lay a stone in Zion, a testing stone a precious cornerstone for a sure foundation. The one who relies on it will never be stricken with panic. I will make justice the measuring line and the righteousness the plumb line. And then coming into Hebrews chapter 12, verses 18 to 24, it's talking about the mountain Sinai, but then it's talking about a better place, a better mount. So this verse goes like this. You have not come to a mountain that can be touched, and that is burning with fire. To darkness, gloom, and storm, to a trumpet blast, or to such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further word be spoken to them, because they could, it, that because they could not bear what was commended, commanded. If even an animal touches a mountain, it must be stoned to death. The sight was so terrifying that Moses said, I am trembling with fear. But now, we have come to Mount Zion. You have come to Mount Zion. The, 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 the writer of Hebrews, I believe, is Paul, is saying, but now you have come to Mount Zion, 
to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. So you can see even from those two um, sets of verses that we've really moved on from the Old Testament right into the New Testament. And then Revelation chapter 14 and verse 1. Then I looked, and there before me was the Lamb, standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. Now we needn't worry about the number, but here are all these people, and there's going to be loads and loads of people. Uh, look before me. And there was the Lamb standing on Mount Zion. Now if all these people are in Mount Zion with the Lord, we are we would be in Mount Zion with the Lord. It would be the New Jerusalem, Mount Zion. And so I'm just going to conclude really with Revelation chapter 21, 1 to 4, just to show you the new Jerusalem. Then I saw the new heaven and the new earth. For the first heaven, the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully addressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the order of things has passed away. So we will be in the new Jerusalem, in Zion, with the Lord. And just this little bit on the bottom, <clears throat> today Christians have the privilege and honor of dwelling in Zion, which is the kingdom of heaven, or God's presence. Through the blood of Jesus that was shed on, his cr on the cross for us at Calvary. But our present glorious walk in Zion is nothing compared to the future glory that will be revealed. Now we witness Zion from an incomplete vantage point, as though through a glass darkly. Um, I just hope that that has cheered you up a bit um, and that you've seen a new aspect on Zion. Um, because it's not something you come across every day. So um, it's, it's a good question. Great stuff, mate. Love that. Um, really quickly, before we move on to the next three questions, any thoughts, comments, follow-up questions? No? Great. Yeah, he's put a lot of work into that, hey? He sat and found all 152 mentions of it. No. <laughs> That's good. Really good. Love that. Okay, all right then. Next question then is for Chris. 1 Peter 4 verse 8, does this mean that if you sin, as long as you love, you get away with it because your sin is hidden? No. <laughs> Next question. All right, a little bit. Um, no, it's, it's a fair question. Um, so the verse in question is uh, 1 Peter 4 8, which says, most important of all, continue to show deep love for each other. For love covers a multitude of sins. And uh, yeah, it's obviously a verse we hear a lot. And it, to be fair, it's probably one of those verses that um, I've certainly not necessarily heard preached on a whole amount. It's often one of those verses that people throw in 
on top of other verses or other chapters or other um, sort of studies, you know, just to underline a point, you know, it's just important to love each other. It's important to love each other because it covers a multitude of sins. And so it's good to ask, what does that actually mean? Um, but I think the clear resounding answer is no, it does not mean that you can do what you like, but as long as you love, it's it's fine. Because actually, it's not, as, as Jesus has said, it's not possible to love purely and to sin at the same time anyway. Um, but that's a philosophical point. Um, <clears throat> so, so a few, just, you have to bear with me because it's just a few sort of random thoughts rather than a really coherent sort of uh, answer, but I think it all comes together. But anyway, just, just, just picking out a few verses from this little chunk just to demonstrate the context from which um, Peter was, was talking. So um, verse 1 of chapter 4 sort of says it all. So then, since Christ suffered physical pain, you must arm yourselves with the same attitude he had and be ready to suffer too. For if you have suffered physically for Christ, you have finished with sin. So really, that is enough, isn't it? If Jesus suffered physically in order to um, free us from sin, then we should have the same attitude, willing to also f- suffer physically, be it you know very much physically suffering or suffering in the flesh, you know, suffering from not following the ways of the world in order to make an end to sin. So I think I think that confirms the question. You know, it's not about getting away with it. That this is, it's the total opposite intention. Um, but just to un- underline that, verse two goes on to say, "You won't spend the rest of your lives chasing your own desires, but you will be anxious to do the will of God." Again, there's no hint there that this is about getting away with it. Or you know, if I just sprinkle a bit of love on top of all my bad behaviour and my selfish desires, then I'll get away with it. This is, this is very much the opposite. And then finally, just on this point, verse 7, which is obviously just, just comes before the verse we're looking at. The end of the world is coming soon. Therefore, be earnest and disciplined in your prayers. So again, there's something about this, this exhortation, if you like, pointing towards a deeper self-control. And obviously, that, that was born out of this, this fervent belief that the early church had that you know, Jesus was coming again literally really, really soon. So, you know, by all means, be disciplined in your prayers and do not chase your own desires. So I think, I think, I think that's the first general point is if you read around it, it's, there's a clear, clear message. This is not about what you can get away with. You know, it's, it's not about that. So, um, but, but a couple of other, couple of other points um, and, and just linking back to the Old Testament. So, if you want to flick back to Proverbs, and um, there's a really just just a snappy uh, verse in Proverbs chapter 10, verse 12, which says, "Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all offences." That's probably again one you've one you've read or heard before. And again, th- this this helps to sort of underline the point because there's there's a there's an opposite, isn't there? Whereas hatred stirs up strife, love 
covers all offenses. So it can it cannot be that you can get away with hatred as long as you have a certain amount of love or you're nice to 20% of people you meet. There's a direct opposite there. Whereas hate stirs up strife, love covers all offenses. And it got me thinking, well, what, what does that actually mean? So what does it, what does it, and going back to the, the verse we're looking at, love covers a multitude of sins. And I think the, I think it's easy to assume that it means, oh, you know, you just, you just do a bit of loving and then it sort of like buries it under the carpet. But this is something much deeper than that. Um, the word covers in Proverbs, in the Old Testament, in Hebrew, suggests a sense of overwhelming. So not just sort of, we're not just talking about sweeping it under the carpet. We're talking about burying. And what do we, you know, this is imagery we know about, isn't it? Burying to put to death, to put into the ground, to really put to waste, you know, to, to kill, to destroy. So this is not about, again, this is not about getting away with it, but this is actually something about love in action that helps to defeat and kill off sin. So it's the exact, it's the exact opposite. Um, and again, similarly, Psalm, Psalm 32 verse 1 says, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. You know, so again, it's that sense that this is, it's, well, I suppose it's not just about burying something deeply, but there's something about forgiveness as well, which which comes out of which comes out of love. So I think again, the reader here would have assumed that there was. It's not. It's so far from about. Oh, as long as you're just a bit nice and you do a bit lovey dovey, then you can get away with it. It's actually you. You are required to forgive one another, just as Jesus said. You know, if if you forgive, then I will forgive. You know, if you if you leave things unforgiven, then you will not be forgiven. There's something serious here about the pa- the power of love, which enables forgiveness, which enables that the power to in order to defeat sin and just to kick it out and root it out and destroy it. So, I think there's something about definitely, obviously, not getting away with it. There's something about um, love overwhelming sin. And there's also something about the forgiveness that enables that. And that's hard to do. That, that's, that's not easy to do. It's not easy to forgive sin. But we, we, I'm sure we can all speak to that. You know, when we've forgiven somebody, that's when it's been dealt with rather than just, sweep, as I said, sweeping it under the carpet. And I think that the last thing I'll say is um, there's something about, I think this is really important in, because it speaks to the world, the way of the world in today's world, you know, often I think a lot of people's approach, and I know this is a generalization, but I think often people's approach is, you know, as long as that person doesn't get in my way, as long as this person doesn't offend me, then they can sort of do what they like. You know, they can get away with what they're doing as long as it doesn't impact me. And I think we we can get into that way of worldly thinking in the church of, oh, do you know what, as long as they seem all right and they're not getting in my way, that's fine. But there's something about this sort of love, which 
is sacrificial love. It's, you know, it's the agape love. It's the love that goes out of its way to actually, as a family, root this stuff out. And that, as I said, only comes through, um, you know, loving people deeply and being willing to forgive people and actually working together. And I, I can say, like, people around me in this church, in churches I've been in before, have not just sort of allowed me to get away with things, but in love have held me accountable and walked with me and taught me and shown me a better way. And do, do you know what I mean? So I think all in all, this is a long way from getting away with it. It's about, um, yeah, in, in love, in, in a sort of family unit and drawing each other into a better way and, you know, making sure that that sin is not just swept under the carpet but really dealt with. That's great, mate. I love that. I know I thought about what you just said about love, literally burying it. Like, I love that. That's a great image, image, hey? Um, I, you kind of said this, I think, but um, I was just thinking about it as you were talking then. I think the question implies that if you love, you get away with sin, right? But I think the context is, like you said, is, is the church community, is other people. And I think this isn't about your sin being covered, but about the sin of others being covered. Um, so above all, love each other deeply. And the next verse is about offering hospitality to one another. And the previous chapter has talked about how you serve one another and the relationships you have with one another. So this is, this is about when somebody else maybe sins against you, you being like Christ and suffering that and loving them and covering or atoning their sin. Because um, Jesus says, doesn't he, the way that you love one another that the world will know you're my disciples. So, yeah, it's um, maybe more about other people getting away with it because you love them enough and you're <laughs> not that they're getting away with it, but you know what I mean. Like, yeah, it's cool. Good stuff. Um, right, Dan, 1 Peter 5, verse 12. Who is Silas and what does he do? Uh, well, you're getting there. Um, yeah, he's interesting character, Silas. Let's go, go ahead with the verse uh, to start off with. It says, With the help of Silas, whom I regard as a faithful brother, I have written to you briefly, encouraging you and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand fast in it. We'll come back to this verse in a minute because really this is at the end of um, the appearances of Silas in the Bible. But if you'd like to turn to Acts chapter 15, then we'll have a look at his story and who this guy was. Um, what is happening here is um, famous verses, famous outline that you'll, you'll know from Acts. Um, in Antioch, there are Gentiles uh, and there are the Jewish people. And what the Jewish people are saying is that the Gentiles, as they come into the kingdom, they need to be circumcised. And there's a bit of a for all in Antioch, and Paul and Barnabas are there. So Paul and Barnabas go to Jerusalem to talk to Peter and the elders. And what happens then is that as they come to Jerusalem, and I'm going right on here to uh, verse 22 of chapter 15. It says, the council's letter to Gentile believers and it says, then the apostles and the elders, this is the people in Jerusalem, in the whole church, 
decided to choose some of their own men and send them to Antioch, in other words, to sort this out, with Paul and Barnabas. So they chose Judas called Barsabbas and Silas, men who were leaders among the believers. With them, they sent the following letter. So straight away we see Silas is a leader in a church in Jerusalem. So this guy is not just some um, member of the, the congregation, as it were. He is someone who's a leader, and he is someone who is going to go with Paul and Barnabas to take this letter and to sort things out. And it says, including that verse of 23, the apostles and the elders, your brothers, are going to be the Gentile believers in Antioch. So they're going to Antioch. They're also going to Syria and to Cilicia, which is in Turkey. So then out comes the letters, greetings, etc. Um, uh, and then in verse 27, therefore we are sending Judas and Silas to confirm by word of mouth that we are writing. So Silas and uh, Judas are witnessing the writings in Jerusalem. They're going to come with these letters as well as, as well as Paul. And they're going to confirm that this was done by the church in Jerusalem. So verse 30 of chapter 15. So the men were sent off and went down to Antioch, where they gathered the church together and delivered the letter. The people read it and were glad. For its encouraging message, Judas and Silas, who themselves were prophets. Now, here's another thing about Silas. He is a prophet. Okay, so this guy is not only a leader in the church in Jerusalem, he is also a prophet. Uh, and they said much to encourage and strengthen the believers. And then you go down to verse 36, and you'll see that heading disagreement between Paul and Barnabas, where Paul and Barnabas in this section has a disagreement. And so what happens in verse 39 is they had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company. Barnabas took Mark and sailed for Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas. So Paul is going to choose Silas as a partner now. And they left, commended by the brother believers to the grace of the Lord. He went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. So here is now Silas, and he's going with Paul. Now obviously, Paul is the main man, because Paul's always a main man. And Silas is here backing up Paul. So Silas is a kind of willing background guy to Paul, even though he's been a leader in the church in Jerusalem, even though he's a prophet, he's still not bigging himself up, um, trying to match Paul. He is um, being subservient, it's the wrong word, but you know what I mean, to, to, to Paul. And then what happens is that in chapter 16, Timothy is going to join Paul and Silas. You'll see that in the heading of your Bible, if, you, if your Bible is like mine. And it says, Paul came to Derby and then to Lystra, where a disciple named Timothy lived. So Timothy is now joined them. And then, next section, Paul's vision of the man of Macedonia, verse 6. Paul and his companions traveled throughout the region of Phrygia and Galatia. This is Turkey, modern-day Turkey, if you like. Okay, so here is Silas, again, going with Paul. He's going on this missionary journey, and he's going through Turkey. 
and then go down to Lydia's conversion in Philippi, and I'm going to verse 12 of chapter 16. From there, they, they went to Samaritan, and the next day we went to Neapolis. From there, we traveled to Philippi. So they've gone from Turkey, from Chiraz. They've got the boat over to the port of uh, Samaras, and they've traveled to Philippi, which is the northern part of Greece. Macedonia is the northern part of Greece. So now they've come over, they're in Greece, and they're going to Philippi. So from there we traveled to Philippi, a Roman colony, and the leading city of that district of Macedonia, and we stayed there several days. And then you get, uh, turn over the page, I say turn over the page, I think you all, I think you all, got, I think you all got Bibles the same as me. Uh, Turn, turn to uh, verse 19 of chapter 16. Over the page it should be. Um, uh, and so the heading is Paul and Silas in prison to, the, to this section, right? So you know the score where this uh, lady tells the future and she's making money for these guys and Paul casts a spirit out of her. And so these guys grab Paul and Silas and they call they cause a great for all. So in verse 19, when her owners, that's the lady's owners, realized that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. So now here's Paul with Silas, and they're being dragged into that marketplace. And then what happens, verse 22, the crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas, and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten with rods. So now Silas is going to be beaten for his faith. Verse 25, about midnight, Paul and Silas, here we go again, were praying and singing hymns. And then there's a, an earthquake. Uh, you, you probably know this well. Verse 29, the jailer called for lights, rushed in, and found trembling, fell trembling before Paul and Silas. So Paul and Silas do not escape from prison. They're there, they're, they, they stay there. And this guy is saved. He says, sir, what must I do to be saved? Verse 36, the jailer told Paul, the magistrates have ordered that you and Silas, just Silas again, be released. Now you can leave, go in peace. But Paul said to the officers, they beat us publicly without a trial even though we are Roman citizens. So we learn this about Silas, that he's a Roman citizen. Now, they should have had a, a proper trial. If they're Roman citizens, they should have had a proper trial, not just be slung in jail. So the magistrates and these guys who put them in jail are going to be a bit fearful over this um, because they've done something wrong. So, so now Silas, we know, is a Roman citizen. Verse 40, after Paul and Silas came out of the prison, they went to Lydia's house, Lydia, the, the, the lady, the dye maker who had to get out of uh, um, Rome, uh, where they met with the brothers and sisters and encouraged them, then they left. And this is where they go to Thessalonica, or as they say nowadays, Thessalonica. Um, and um, verse 4 of chapter 17, some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and quite a few prominent women. But, verse 5, the other Jews were jealous, so they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace, formed a mob, and started a riot in the city. 
they rushed to Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out to the crowd. But when they did not find them, then Jason then gets into trouble. So I'm going on to verse 10, and the heading is Bereal. Bereal is a city just down the road uh, from uh, Thessalonica. And the verse says, as soon as it was night, the believers sent Paul and Silas away to Bereal. So Paul and Silas, here's Silas again, they're going off to Bereal, which is quite a near city to Thessalonica. It's south, going towards Athens, uh, Corinth that way. And then verse 14, the believers immediately sent Paul to the coast, but Silas and Timothy stayed at Bereal. So Paul's off, but Silas is staying at Bereal. Those who escorted Paul brought him to Athens and then left with instructions for Silas and Timothy to join him as soon as possible. So next section, Paul is in Athens and he starts to preach and we're going right over now to chapter 18. It's over the page. And verse 1. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. So now Paul has gone to Corinth. And verse 5. When Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia, Paul devoted himself exclusively to the preaching and teaching of Jerusalem. So they have come now. Uh, Silas and Timothy have come from Macedonia, which is uh, Bereal, uh, Thessalonica. And I'm going to verse 18 of chapter 18. Paul stayed on in Corinth for some time. Then he left the brothers and sisters and sailed for Syria, accompanied by Priscilla and Aquila. So back in Corinth is Silas. He's staying there. Okay, so Paul is now going on on his on this missionary journey um, and he's going on to Ephesus now virtually that's a, that's the, the last we hear of him but if you turn to 1 Thessalonians and verse 1 uh, chapter 1 it's just over the page okay it just says Paul Silas and Timothy so Paul is writing his letter to the Thessalonians, but he includes Silas and Timothy. So we re again, Silas pops up. And if you go to 2 Thessalonians, you'll see exactly the same thing. And it says, Paul, Silas, and Timothy. So the opening letter with Paul's usual um, greetings to the church of the Thessalonians, etc., from Paul, Silas, and Timothy. So Paul and Silas is really still up there um, as a main man under Paul, but he's, not, he's, he's obviously not the main man. And then we just go to our verse in 2 Peter. Where we started out, 2 Peter chapter 5 and verse 12. And there again, where we started, Silas is now with Peter. So he's been with two major absolutely major apostles he's been with paul and now he's with peter so it now says this is at the end of the letter of the first peter with the help of silas whom i regard as a faithful brother i have written to you briefly encouraging you and testifying that this is the true grace of god stand fast in it and it almost seems like silas is described here with peter dictating the letter 
um, I mean, Peter was this fisherman. He wouldn't have had that great education. But it almost seems like Silas is there as the scribe to uh, Peter's letter. But here is Silas again, now with Peter. So can you imagine it? This guy has been with Paul on this journey. He's now with Peter. But he's always been content to be uh, second, in, second down, third down, whatever. He's always been content with that. And I just scribbled down a few things um, here. Um, and I've got this. Uh, firstly, I think we may see here a hint as to the worth and importance of the behind-the-scenes people. And I'm really up for this, that, that everybody in the church is, belongs to the body. Everybody, no matter what it is, we, we might be stuck up here. The band might be up here on a Sunday. Matt might be up here preaching. But behind the scenes all week, stuff is done that makes the church go round, and it's the body of God. And this, this is Silas's position. He's making, he's making the things happen behind the scenes. Secondly, not a syllable that Silas ever said is recorded in Scripture. If we've just been through it, he, he hasn't said anything, but, but he's, he's right there. Uh, if he had been a chief man in Jerusalem, he had been, but was anything but a chief man when he worked with Paul. But he found his proper work. He did not say, I am not going to be second. He was content to play second fiddle all his days. And just to finish with, when, when I was young, a uh, young man, St. Phillips Marsh was quite a built-up area. It had houses all over the place, uh, but now it's um, warehouses and um, things like that, car, car rescue places. But when I was a young man, it, it, it had a community, and it had a church there called St. Silas. Now just imagine Silas, if he thought 2,000 years later there would be a church called his, by his name in a far-off land, I wonder what he'd have thought. That's cool, Dan. Thanks for that. Do you think that um, after Paul went on and Silas stayed in Corinth, do you think that that's when he then started kind of working alongside Peter or... I think he stayed in Corinth for about a year and a half. And, um, but how would the connection with Peter come? I don't know, because when, when this all kicked off, and it's a long time before, Peter was in Jerusalem, remember, because that's when the letter was sent out. But how it all happened after that, I, I, I don't know. Cool. All right, then. Um, next question. Hang on a minute. I'm flicking through. Next question is, oh, me. Um, we're in 1 John for this one. 1 John. Yeah, just over the page or two. So 1 John chapter 1, verses 5 to 10. And the question is this. If we claim to be without sin, we lie, and the word is not in us. But if we walk in darkness or sin, and we cannot have fellowship with God, how can both be true? You see that? Let's, let's read the passage. So from verse 5, it says this. This is the message we have heard from him and declared to you. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, 
we lie and do not live out the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his son purifies us from all sin. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just, and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar, and his word is not in us. So, how on one hand can it say that if we claim to be without sin, then we're making God out to be a liar? So, we obviously have sin. Um, But on the other hand, it says that if we walk in darkness, then we can't be in fellowship with him. So how can we both have sin and walk in darkness but not be in fellowship with God? Does that make sense? Yeah, cool. Okay, so um, I thought this was a great question. I was like, oh, cool. Um, so um, I had a little read in the Greek. Um, obviously, I read the English translation of the Greek because I don't actually read Greek just before, you know, it makes me sound really intelligent. I don't. Um, but um, I had a little look. And um, I think this all hinges on what you understand by darkness. Okay, by darkness. So this, this question assumes that when we talk about darkness, we are referring to the same thing that we talk about when we talk about sin. Does that make sense? Because it clearly says that if you walk in darkness, you can't have fellowship with God. But it also clearly says that if you uh, claim to be without sin, then you're a liar. And so so it's it's making this connection that sin and darkness are one of the same thing. And And actually, when I read it, I was like, yeah, I think I've totally read this passage like that before and never really questioned it, just kind of gone, eh? and then moved on. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Um, so I think this all hinges on what you understand by darkness. So the word darkness in Greek, I don't know if I'm saying this correctly, but it's the word skotos, okay? S-K-O-T-O-S, skotos. Um, and it literally does mean darkness, or it means obscurity, Okay, so darkness or obscurity. Uh, So I I then got an English dictionary to look up the word obscurity to make sure that my understanding of that was correct. And um, I'm actually to educate myself as to exactly what that word meant. (laughs) It's not a word that I use all the time. If you think about it, like someone fading into obscurity, kind of, you can get that imagery of darkness, can't you? Like fading into nothing, fading into... And so I checked the word obscurity anyway, and this is what the English dictionary said. Uh, Obscurity. The state of being unknown, inconspicuous, or unimportant. Okay? The state of being unknown, inconspicuous, or unimportant. So there's actually a difference between darkness and sin. In this passage, darkness and sin are not the same thing, and the words are not being used to mean the same thing. Um, We all have sin in our lives, right? I think that is a given. I think the Bible says that. Um, sorry if you're offended. <laughs> but I think that is, that is true. We all have sin in our lives. We need a savior. Um, but those who walk in the light, okay, those who walk in relationship with God, they, they know that they have sin in their lives. 
Because when we walk in relationship with God, we talked about this this morning, didn't we, right? When we come into the light, when we come into that encounter with God, relationship with God, our sin gets exposed. And we know, we know when we see him that we are sinners, we are not like him. Um, But the joy of that, like we talked about this morning, is that when we come into relationship with him, we also discover that he is the one that forgives sin. And this is what this passage tells us, right? It tells us that if if we confess our sins, if we're honest about our sins and we open up about them and we're real about them, we bring them into the light and we make them known and we confess them, he is faithful and just and he will forgive our sins. But those who walk in the darkness, they are almost unaware of their sinful, sinful state. And so do, do you see how if you're unaware of your sinful state, if, if you're in obscurity, if you're unknown, almost even unknown to yourself, the reality of who you are is unknown. If you're carrying sin, you cannot be in right relationship with God. If you don't realize that you are a sinner and you need saving, you can't walk with him, right? So, so those that walk in darkness, they're unaware of it. They, they, they walk in obscurity. They're not known by him, and uh, they do not know themselves, the state of their own hearts. Notice verse 7, where it says, But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with, the one, with one another, and the blood of Jesus his Son purifies us from all sin. Those who walk in the light, they are able to have their sins forgiven. Those who walk in the light are able to have fellowship with Jesus and and they're able to have their sins forgiven. Not because they're sinless, that's not why they walk in the light, uh, but because they are in the light, they know their sinful state uh, and they know that when they come into relationship with him, they are able to receive the forgiveness that he offers. Does Does that make sense? So, that was a little bit of a learning curve for me digging into that passage because I'd always just read it as, oh, darkness, that means sin. Like in him is light and purity and holiness and, 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 and there's no sin in him. I almost read it like that. But that's not actually what the Greek word means. Um, it means the sense of being unknown, like being in obscurity, being in darkness, being hidden from God and almost hidden from ourselves and not recognizing that we as sinners need a savior. But when we come into the light and we recognize that, he is faithful and just and he forgives us our sins. So is that cool? Great. Awesome. Hang on, for the sake of the podcast, go for it. It's his light that exposes our sin. And that's a good thing, right? Maybe a bit like uncomfortable at first, like, oh, God, shine a light on that. But it's because he's like, I want to forgive it. I want to break it off. I want to deal with it. And yeah, love that. Cool. All right, then. Um, Guys, we are coming to the end. So um, yeah, (laughs) I know. What's going on? You have to put more questions in or deeper questions next time. (laughs) Um, So... (laughs) They're all for Chris and uh, for Dan, though, if that happens. Um, so this question is our last one. This is for you guys. So 1 John, chapter 2, verse 7 to 8. Is John writing a new command and an old command, or a new command in a new way, or something entirely different? So let's go there. 1 John, chapter 2. You've got to love John, right? Like He is actually it's just a little bit confusing with the way that he writes. And people think that Paul is confusing, but actually John, John seems to like to write in poetic 
riddles and all kinds of things. And you, yeah. So here we go. Um, 1 John 2, verses 7 to 8, he says, Dear friends, I am not writing you a new command, but an old one. That seems pretty clear, right? Which you have said, uh, which you have had since the beginning. This old command is the message you have heard. Yet, I am writing you a new command. Its truth is seen in him and in you, because the darkness is passing and the true light is already shining. So um, how about we split into two groups? We'll go this group and this group, and I'll loan you my two... uh, theologians here and (laughs) and um we'll give you kind of four or five minutes have a little chat about it feel free to look up some greek or you know whatever you want to do and um and yeah we'll see what we come up with go for it all right then let's um let's hear, hear what you've come up with shall we all right so we, we'll, we'll start here, and then we'll come to you guys. So who wants to be spokesperson? Chris, Chris does. Alison? Yeah. No, no. I didn't. <laughs> okay, so we thought that... Um, the, the command is the old command from the Old Testament where um, it says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind and all your soul and all your strength. That when Jesus was questioned about the greatest command, that was what he responded. It's the command to love God first and then love your neighbor as yourself. So it's that same command. But um, when it goes on to the next verse in verse 8, when he says, then yet I am writing you a new command, its truth is seen in him we were saying that is most likely to be Jesus, that the truth is in Jesus and in you. So the love that was in Jesus that's now in us, because in Romans it says that the love of God has been poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit, so that we have that empowerment to love, um, as we couldn't do under the Old Testament because Jesus hadn't come and regenerated us and given us the power of the Holy Spirit. And then we also pulled out from... Um, John's gospel where Jesus said that I've given you a new command (laughs) to love your neighbor as I have loved you love each other as I have loved you which goes a step further than love your neighbor as yourself because then that's it's it's not easy to love your neighbor as you love yourself but it's easier to do that than to love others as Jesus has loved us in that sacrificial way so to summarize (laughs) It's an old commandment in a new way. That's what we think. Fantastic, right then. David's being pointed at. (laughs) I'll give a glare at Dennis. (laughs) (laughs) I, I was sort of saying, well, where is this command that he's actually giving? And to some extent, in verses 9 and 10, it's the nearest we could see, if you like, that there was some sort of command that he's writing, where it says, anyone who claims to be in the light but hates a brother or sister is still in darkness. Anyone who loves their brother and sister lives in the light, and there is nothing in them to make them stumble. But anyone who hates a brother or sister is in the darkness and walks around in the darkness. And... Um, 
So in that sense, the, it would seem that this command that he's talking is about, about is about love. And so, yeah, we're getting back to where the other group got to, that uh, the Old Testament command was to love God and to love each other. Um, and now he's um, writing that again. And I like particularly what Alison and their group was saying about how it's picking up on that um, command that Jesus gives to love as he loved. And so, yeah, I think we're in agreement with them. If it's, if it's about John, it's going to be about love. It's so true. Do you know what, guys? I don't really need to add anything, so I think what you said is, is great. I think... Um, I will, though, because... <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I, I agree. I think um, he says, doesn't he, in verse 7, we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commands. So he's making reference to commands already given, right? Um, and we know that Jesus, uh, he summed up the greatest command, like you guys said, this is it, love the Lord your God. And we know that Jesus came to fulfill the old command, the, the old law, the Old Testament, all of that kind of thing. So it's all fulfilled in Jesus. And I think that's what John's getting at. Um, in John's gospel, in chapter 1, we read this great kind of literary reconstruction of the Exodus 33-34 passage where God meets Moses on top of the mountain and gives him the commandments, gives the law, right? And, and when you read John chapter 1, as well as getting Genesis in there, you get Exodus in there, and you get this whole Jesus being portrayed as the God who was at the top of the mountain come down to dwell in the tabernacle, um, and all that language is in there. But then it says this, um, verse 17, for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Um, and and there's this, this kind of, John's got this idea that all this stuff in the Old Testament somehow came into its fullness in and through the person of Jesus. And so, yeah, it is an old command. It's existed for a long, long time. God's always called us to that. To, As he writes here uh, in verse 6, whoever claims to live in him must live as he did, must live as Jesus did. So God's always been calling his people to live his way. Today, if you hear these words, choose blessing, choose life, not cursing, like live this way, love the Lord your God, all that kind of thing. And so there's, there's this old command that's existed and John's saying, I'm not changing that. I'm giving you this old command. But yet I am giving you a new command, which is seen in him. Like, and so actually he's saying it's an old command, but we actually see it lived out in and through the person of Jesus. And we're called to be like him, to live like him, to walk in the light with him. You guys, he said all of that, really. But yeah, that is, that's it. It's great. Good stuff. Boom. Well, that, that is, that's a wrap for tonight. So... Um, do you want to pray for us, Chris? Great. Heavenly Father, um, this evening has been great, and the thread that has run through it is, like obviously every every other Sunday is, but but seems poignantly about love. Um, you know whether it is in the yearning of the woman in Song of Songs, longing after that the man that she loves, or whether it's Silas serving Paul and Peter in the background in love, or whether it's John almost renewing that commandment in the light of 
Jesus to love one another just as Christ has loved us. So I don't think it could be clearer for us this evening that you're calling us to to love um to love you to to love each other to but also to draw on the love that you have for us lord um we pray for your church um we pray for all of us here but also all of our brothers and sisters who are at home who are preparing and thinking about monday and the week ahead um for those who I just want to pray particularly for those who feel like Sunday is is a is a sanctuary especially for them and that Monday sort of opens up the floodgates to a harsher reality, a tougher sort of climb. I want to pray that you just help them to see that you're preparing a broader place for them. Um even if it's not physically, that that in in their hearts, it, in in the kingdom that you have, that you're building around us, that there is a place we can dwell, whether Sunday or Monday or any other day of the week, we can dwell in safety, we can dwell in peace, we can dwell in the in the knowledge that um, you are with us, and nothing can stand against us because of that. And to pray, your Holy Spirit would be with us all and um, teach us, give us that longing for love and and, um, help us to serve all of those who are around us this week. And pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.